You're listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Today's guest is a journalist's dream. He has deep, long and broad industry experience. He's very intelligent. He has very strong and clear opinions about how insurance works and why he is doing what he's doing. More importantly, he's never afraid of expressing those opinions, and he does so with great enthusiasm and charisma. Even better for us is that he has a new role heading a company that plays in one of the most interesting hard markets anywhere in the world. He is Andrew Robinson. The company is Houston International Group, HIG, and the market is US Specialty Lines. HIG is the business founded by Maverick Industry entrepreneur Stephen Way in 2006 after leaving HCC. So Andrew has some big shoes to fill. I don't need to preempt what we talk about here. The market and how Andrew wants to position HIG within it are plenty to be getting on with, and he won't leave you with any doubt about what he thinks about all the issues of the day. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one, so stand by. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. Right, Andrew, thanks so much for giving us the time. You must be incredibly busy. Why don't you give us an outline of your vision for Houston International Group? Yeah, so so I I guess just a bit of background here. HIG is a 13-year-old company founded by Stephen Way, who's been the only CEO up until, you know, I took over about two and a half months ago. Stephen, obviously, amazingly successful career, right? Having built HCC from scratch. And and, uh, I think that HIG probably over the last 13 years, hasn't fulfilled the ambitions and and its potential. And I think after a period of time of really not progressing in the way that it should, you know, the the board concluded that it was time to try to do some things differently, to make the company, at least put the company in a position to be what it can be. And in this case, obviously, I'm hired into this role because of my, my specialty background, both my U.S. as well as my international orientation. And, you know, the first two and a half months has largely been sort of trying to figure out what we have in terms of businesses and where we could take pieces that are promising, defensible businesses and and try to build on those going forward. There has been a bunch of changes, which if time allows, we can cover. But in terms of the vision for the business, look, we are uh, at the most fundamental level aiming to be a company that is a specialty insurance company. 
I describe ourselves as a company that's going to absolutely going to rule our niches, if you will. And I, I'd say in some ways, where it is that we choose to compete, you know, we're going to own those segments, right? And leave larger players to try to get a share of the market. And those will be in specialty categories. For now, we have multiple points of focus. Um, we have a point of focus around financial lines, including both professional being specific areas within things such as uh, financial institutions and miscellaneous professional and executive liability as well as surety within financial lines, a focus around programs. We don't really have a, a large program portfolio. We have only six. We have two and a half where we delegate authority. So we're, we're really looking for categories that are complementary to what we want to, if you will, manufacture the, the entire stack of insurance, if you will. A third area for us is very much focused on specialty industries. Today, we're one of the top writers in, in the mining industry, including precious metals, some commodities areas, including coal. We have a focus in construction and focus in energy. And then the third area within kind of our specialties, if you will, is, is in ENS. And in fact, we just recruited a team that will be starting at the beginning of September, focused very much on sort of the wholesale brokerage market, products liability led. And if you complement all that with the sort of the core competence that, that Stephen Wade built in the organization around high capacity commercial property, it's a pretty broad and diverse portfolio. And, you know, and for us, those are, those are the starting points of where it is that we're going to focus ourselves from a niche perspective and we're going to grow and develop into other categories or subsegments some of those categories as we mature as an organization. If I was to summarize that, it's to say that you've, you're kind of happy with what you've got and you've had a look around and you know that you're strong in some of these areas and you want to deepen that strength and deepen that strategic competitive advantage in those very niche areas. And then you'd be looking to build around those areas. You want to come in and change everything or there's certain lines that you already know you want to be out of. Well, I, ignore, I ignored what it is that we exited, right? So on my first day on the job, we exited the lawyer's professional liability business. And that is in a process of runoff. I shut down a monoline workers comp business that I just didn't see a place where the first, because I just didn't see us being able to deliver sustainable, acceptable returns and have a truly defensible position. We had a share of a market that's that's highly competitive and we don't really have any distinctive capabilities. And the same was true in our monoline comp business. And so took action to exit that. There are a whole number of other portfolios inside of some of the areas I described, which include things that we've done to reduce our writings, reduce our capital allocation, become much more focused in specific subsegments where it is that I believe that we can have a defensible position, that there's a large enough market to justify the investment. So all you got was the good news of the starting point and the good news on where we're focusing. In the first two and a half months, there's been an equal number of actions on things that we stopped writing, if you so it's really all about making sure that you've got some kind of comparative advantage or market position or that you are a relevant player when a broker comes to you. You know that you're an important player to them, that they know that they really they, they either need your capacity or they certainly want to see what you're quoting on something. No, that's, that's absolutely right. Look, our, our strategy and you know, part of what I've done during the first two and a half months is to try to render for our team clarity on, on how we're going to win, right? And without taking you through all the details, you know, we talk about sort of seven core things, but the, the top of that is that we're going to rule our niche, right? We're going to own the segments that we compete in. And so, you know, we don't want to share the market. So if we ultimately are going to play in A&H or even categories that are going through disruption right now, like contingency 
see. It's not like we want to share the market. We want to play in a specific place where we believe we can build a defensible position. The market is large enough for that position for us to be able to invest. And then all the other elements of our strategy around how we're going to make sure that we're bringing what I would describe as uncommon insight and a unique approach to execution, the way that we're building kind of almost a bespoke brain trust to support that, executing in our daily excellence and using technology to gain advantage. Those are all components that are that are in support of kind of ruling our niche. And, and that's very much about how we're going to develop this business. Surely your timing couldn't be any better, Andrew. You've just stepped into a much harder specialty and ENS market, and we've got the added, perhaps you'd say benefit, or but um, not necessarily benefit, but anyway, we've got COVID-19 also giving everything an extra nudge if it didn't already need it. So how has that affected your strategic thinking? Is it you just gone to your capital providers and going to say, right, we, we need more capital, we need more of everything? Um, well, we haven't done that yet. I will say the one thing it probably does for not just folks like me who are new CEOs into the role, but uh, I'd say probably everybody, you can see the amount of both debt and equity capital that's been raised, particularly since beginning of April. We actually were one of the first, we were actually the first out of the blocks, as far as I can tell, in terms of raising our capital. We raised $100 million before COVID hit, and there were a set of reasons behind that. But I think the one thing that's happening for me, which is interesting to be a new CEO in a, in a situation where you don't actually get to go meet your employees, right? Fascinating kind of context is the speed in which you want to move given the fact that we have this once in a 20 year, some people might say once in a generation, a hard market behind us, right? So part of this is this intensive kind of period here where we want to be able to get into some of the businesses that are strategic for us. And we want to do that quick because quite honestly, you want to build a book while prices are where they are. At some point, they will revert to the mean and you want to have business where the starting point allows you to make sort of, you have more options with the decisions you make in terms of how you manage the portfolio. And one example of that is we went out and hired a terrific team that I have a great deal of personal experience with to build a transactional wholesale brokerage oriented ENS facility largely going to be products liability led and we're in active conversations with two or other three two or three other teams these are teams that will produce really great profits for the organization highly defensible positions but you want to get started really fast and it's hard to do that simultaneous with fixing the things that I need to fix certainly engaging our employees because that's a that's a critical challenge as a, as a new CEO and then in the not too distant horizon we have to be thinking about capital as well we as an organization are reasonably big, big uses of reinsurance obviously reinsurance costs are going up so we're we're also having to look at capital at the same time but for me the change in priority is the acceleration on some of the new businesses that we want to enter because this is the moment in time in which you want to be able to get started. In terms of what kind of classes, you mentioned contingency might be one, obviously, given, I presume, because of COVID, it must be a fantastic opportunity to come in and offer particularly something that will include a, some kind of COVID coverage, or, or is that completely off the menu? I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't. Coverage for think, a re, you know, for a second wave, that kind of stuff, because. No, you know, I, I, I think that we are like every other, I think, rational, responsible, uh, excellent company, and that we are not going to put our capital to work on a risk that you cannot properly understand and quantify. And certainly pandemic exposure is one. I was just using that as an example of you've had just this massive amount of disruption. And you know, and I know from our years of experience that it's at the moments of disruption that great opportunities are created. And they will oftentimes look different than the old opportunities. We're an A minus, we're an A minus company, but we're in active conversations with top-notch public company DNO teams because we're at a moment in time in which 
we actually probably could build a pretty darn good book of business in specific areas with the right team in public company DNO, despite being an A minus nine company. That's the kind of things that when we think about acceleration, I would have probably only thought about being in the public DNO market when the size of our business was greater than a size nine, and best size nine, and or that we had a strong progression, you know, clear progression to a full A rating. The market accelerates the opportunity for us to think differently about that. And that's an example of the kind of things. Look, I think that at the core, we're going to build around certain areas within financial lines. There'll be variants of what we're already doing in professional and executive liability, or already doing surety. We're going to build more industry solutions. Today, we have mining and energy and construction. I could see us entering into areas like life sciences and technology. I already mentioned the ENS side. We're launching with an ENS brokerage business. We will likely follow up by building a binding authority business. On the property side, on the high capacity commercial property area, we see a lot of opportunities right now. That market is about as hard as it can possibly be. And we're evaluating, are there things that we can do that are broader than how it is that we look at that market today? And then I, I would just tell you that from both an A&H and a programs business, both those businesses are very well situated and we just want to see the opportunities now come to us on our terms, right? We're not doing a lot to change those businesses. We're just clear that we have a good position and we're waiting for the right kinds of opportunities to come to us on our terms and we'll grow those businesses. You mentioned about a harder market in reinsurance and perhaps reinsurance costs also rising. You've got your 100 million. I mean, how much of that do you want to put in towards getting into these new lines and hiring all these people? And how much is it almost a better strategy now when you're in some good lines and you've got some good new business coming in to be able to just retain some more of that business and use that 100 million to have a higher retention? We see both. Look, I think that we, in practical terms, certainly are in a good position with cap relative to what we're seeing in the growth in our business and the way that we're going to grow our business between probably now and you know maybe through the end of 2021. I suspect that uh, companies who are interested in putting capital to work are going to be active for some period of time, whether they're active you know, 17 months from now the way they are today, time will tell. And if presented with an opportunity to confidently raise capital on the right term sooner, we're going to act upon that. And if not, then between now and let's say the end of 2021, we're going to build such a compelling track record that I think that capital today that maybe just opportunistic in the market, it'll look different for us at the end of 2021. I think the capital that, that will be available to our company is capital that's going to value the progression and the track record that we're building, right? And so I, I see them as sort of almost one is opportunistic, the other is capital that really appreciates track record and progression, which um, I'm very confident by the end of 2021, we will have. But between now and then, I don't see us in a particularly stress position relative to our capital while still being able to support taking greater nets where we think we should take them and also supporting growth in new businesses. One of the interesting things about COVID-19 has been the way, obviously, you mentioned the fact that you're the new CEO who hasn't been able to go and meet all his staff yet, which is crazy, isn't it? But it's reinforced the whole digitization of the marketplace. And of course, I first met you in the context of your experience within InsureTech and speaking at InsureTech conferences as a keynote speaker, in fact. So how much of that InsureTech experience are you going to bring to a business like here? Huge, huge. I'll give, you, I'll give you three or four really interesting examples. First off, I, I've been blessed in my career. I, I, you know, I, I spent 20 years in, at the top of strategy consulting, which I think is an incredibly valuable experience because you get to see everything working with great companies. 
a long time in an operating role and then spent three years in, in the world of technology before coming back into an operating role. And it, there's no question that each of those pieces contributed greatly. As it relates to technology, the first thing that I found really interesting is that entering into a company with 15 offices spread all, all throughout the United States, trying to connect with employees, it forced me to think very differently. And, and it's really worked incredibly well. I mean, I amongst the things that I've done is I've been over-communicative, as you'd expect, uh, just by using things such as video presentations and so forth. But I have regular open, virtual open office hours where people can just jump on and start to engage in questions of the day. And by the way, the you're expecting 8, 10, 20 attendees. The smallest we've had is 60 and we've had up to 200 on these. And yet it's almost like a Brady Bunch video screen. You're seeing everybody and it's quite terrific. As I traveled around and learned about our businesses, I was blogging out on our, to our folks and making sure that the benefits of kind of the things I was seeing and hearing and, and so forth, it was just an incredible incredibly effective way to engage. But I, I tell you that I think the most, um, the most interesting thing is, is that we're a Microsoft Teams company and people really don't understand all the incredible power that Microsoft Teams offers. It's in a highly collaborative environment, right? I mean, you can, you can attach documents and people can collaborate on those. Well, as a person who's been hanging out in the technology world for the last three years, I became a power user in Microsoft Teams and kind of like dragged the management team with us. And so there's an entire different way that we're working. And then just simple stuff like uh, in the world of venture capital, goal setting looks very different than the traditional corporate world. There's John Doerr, famed venture capitalist, promoted this concept of OKRs, objectives and key results. Well, I grabbed a hold of that and put that in place for setting our, our objectives and key results for the last two quarters of this year. And we'll use that as a process going forward. I don't imagine there are too many insurance companies that are using a tech based approach for goal setting, which is very much kind of the agile mentality. And so it definitely has, a, has affected how it is that I'm approaching and managing. And, and I'll just say that I think that the, you know, the early response from that, just through our own engagement surveys, what you see out in Glassdoor has been very positive. And so I'm emboldened you to try doing more creative things, which I certainly will continue to do. Will we see Hig um, getting involved in having a kind of tech incubator, that kind of thing? No. I don't think that is in the cards for us. I think that one thing I'll say about HIG where we are really in front, and it's, I don't know if it's just luck or it's with intent, but um, our systems environment is, are quite rational, albeit not the most current. But what the rational system that our tech stack is, is simple enough that what has resulted is an incredibly powerful data warehouse where the information that we have is covers all businesses and incredibly deep and we've supplemented with third-party data. And the tools that we've deployed in just basic reporting and analytics are some of the best I've seen in my, in my career. And so we just happen to be in a place where information happens to be one of our advantages as a company, which is just amazing. I think that what we are doing is we are, like every other organization, trying to make, make ourselves available to the broad ecosystem. And I think, you know, of course, as a tech-oriented CEO, I'm constantly encouraging that. I'm connecting our organization. And we do definitely have the DNA in our company to make use of that. And I think one of the differences, having seen it from a vendor side, right? Because, you know, chairman at Groundspeed, chairman of Clara Analytics, you know, chairman of uh, Planner, is I think we have a more, I think a more effective way to bring in technology without subjecting them to the painful realities of trying to work with big bureaucracies, which, which sometimes insurance companies can be. And so I think that that's where we get an advantage. So you're more of a likely to be a good partner to the sort of insure tech that's producing really cool underwriting tools and good analytics and things exactly. that are going to really help you. You'll be an early adopter of their stuff and you can be an early partner of them. 
Yeah, and look, we're a billion dollar company, right? So just in terms of the ability for a technology provider to work with us and navigate us, it, it, it's so much easier to work with an organization like ours. And I'd like to think that we'll find a way to, to continue that even when we're $2 billion and $3 billion, right? That we keep that in our DNA. Well, we might as well keep on the subject of the, of the insurtech phenomenon because we've had the spectacular lemonade IPO. I bet any public uh, insurance company wishes they were trading on the same multiple as, as lemonade. Multiple, yeah. I'm presuming it's the best uh, multiple uh, price to book multiple anywhere in the world. Is there anything we can learn from that? Is this a real watershed moment? If felt that over the last three or four years, we're in short tech, there was a huge amount of excitement. And now it seems like this is the final vindication. We've actually got a publicly traded company, which is on a very high valuation. Listen, I, I'm a student of the industry, Mark. You and I have known each other for a while. I, I study the industry. We're an industry that, that is there for the good of the world. There's no question about it. And we make the world's GDP go. And I look at Lemonade and I read with great interest the, the prospectus. And look, I'll be honest with you, as a student, I just doesn't make sense to me and not a company that I would personally invest in. And of course, we're all awe-inspired by how the market treated them in terms of valuation and continues to treat them in terms of valuation, but, and great for the investors who were able to take the money off the table. I don't necessarily believe that the story is fully told. So I think setting aside the fact that there are investors who have done incredibly well at various points through the process and really understand the psyche of the next round of investors, the next round of investors, and then the public investors who would follow such a company, I think that that's separate and distinct from whether the business in itself has an intrinsic value that is in even remotely close to, to how the business is valued today. And time will tell on that. You mentioned about maybe engaging on the insurance side and the, uh, as an insurer of technology and technology companies in, in the context, you said you mentioned life sciences and, and also tech itself. We've got a business like Tesla now, which couldn't be a bigger, more technological tech company, again, with a fantastic valuation in the public market. Have we got anything to fear from them coming into insurance and Elon Musk hiring his revolutionary actuaries, as he described them? Or is it something you would really love to engage with a business like that that has obviously fantastic data? My guess is, based on what Musk has said, he doesn't have interest in engaging with us or anybody else, is the general tone he's going to go do it. Look, I think that the, the equivalent is, you know, if you're not that we're Walmart, but I just think if you think of an industry incumbent, Walmart, how do you feel about Amazon, right? And there's no question about it that Amazon made Walmart a better company, right? There, and I think that that's almost undeniable. Uh, and some of that was things that they had to develop themselves and some things that they had to go acquire. I think the same is true for the insurance industry, right? I think anything that, you know, Elon Musk pursues probably has at least some reasonable chance of having some impact on some part of the industry. And insurance would not be part of a, a category that wouldn't be impacted. And I think that the challenge for, for anybody in the industry is that, let's just say in auto, whether it be personal or commercial lines, any of the competitors in that, in that space should feel like uh, things that are being done by, by Tesla will be beneficial to the industry and make you as a competitor have to work harder and better and smarter for your money, right? And I, I don't think anybody should begrudge the efforts of companies like that. I separate that from example, like the Lemonade example, because I think there are things from Lemonade I've always said are really interesting, right? You cannot look at what they do on claims, recognizing that the average claim is less than $1,000 and they're only using AI to settle something like 25% of the claims. But you can't not look at that and say that is not an 
instructive for things that we should be thinking about from a claims perspective. There are pieces of the business model that are valuable, but I think that that's kind of distinct from is the business itself a valuable business. Whereas I think that what we'll find here and whether it's Tesla or some equivalent types of companies, they'll do things that will have a real positive impact on the industry overall and others will have to respond, us included. I'm going to jump back into the market again. We've got this Obviously, you could say that you were the first of the, the capital raisers in 2020, but we've got now an emerging, what we'll probably end up calling the class of 2020 or 2020, <laughs> depending on how quickly they raise the capital, because they may not be can writing. You, can you tell me who's, who's in that class of 2020? I've, I've, no, I've not, only... not yet, not yet. And uh, I'm not at the cutting edge of news journalism anymore, so I, I couldn't tell you, but you know where to read all about that, I'm sure. But anyway, what kind of opportunity have they got to build long-term franchises? Or what are they telling their investors? Do you think they're saying it's a short to medium-term thing, or is it a chance to build fantastic long-term and franchises like there was in 2000, 2001? Or how do you view it, this opportunity at the moment? I Look, I think that uh, it depends on who's raising and to what end. I buy into, you and I have talked about this, I buy into the view that by and large, over the last, whatever, call it 15 years, the balance of power has shifted towards distribution. We've seen a deconstruction of the value chain in some regards. And some of that has been, unfortunately, at the peril of the risk takers, the carriers themselves. I suspect that you will find guys who are jumping in who will make a lot of money because the market is hard, but it'll be a short duration and it won't be sustainable, defensible sort of positions. I think just in general, the question on Lloyd's is a question not related to any individual company, but whether Lloyd's as a, as a body continues to evolve in a way that its position is defensible, not just for the few very good underwriters, but for you have many folks who have not necessarily been top tier underwriters who are raising capital. And, you know, the question of of whether that also looks like sort of fast capital, fast returns, but unsustainable as the market reverts to the mean. I think part of that is really about how Lloyd's develops as as a body and as a market for the benefit of all the underwriters in that market. I will say for a company like us, right, controlling underwriting, controlling risk, controlling claims, focusing on niches where we're trying to build defensible positions, where we have more insight about the risk than everybody else. I think that the capital will prove to be uh, sustainably valuable, right? I'm not going to name companies, but I think that companies that think like that and then can execute accordingly are not just going to create value during the hard market, but will probably be in positions to create value, albeit at a lower level over a long period of time. And I, and I certainly think that Hig is going to be one of those companies. How long's your plan in terms of your do you have a, a plan in your mind or have you been set a time frame by which you'd have to say, right, here is success and this is how I've defined success and, and at what point you say, yes, I've definitely succeeded in my job at Hig? That's a great question. I wouldn't say that there is anything so definitive and and even financial targets have changed a lot, right? Because we're in an interest environment where, you know, yield environment where New money, if you follow like a traditional portfolio, is making 1%, which is just like mind-boggling, right? Which means, you know, you have to deliver sub-90s combined ratio even to start to come close to getting to good, compelling returns above cost of capital. Look, I would define success as follows, which is that we're in a position to have some meaningful spread over our cost of capital, and we have some internal targets around that, built around a set of businesses that by and large are really defensible positions, things that we feel great about, that we are, we're the player in those particular niches and categories, and that we can see a way to do it through the cycle, not just during the, the hard market. You know, how long will that take? I think if we're being super aggressive, we can get meaningfully the way there in the course of 24 months. But it's hard to tell whether that 
you know, kind of aggressive agenda as possible. I'm blessed with a couple of features when I came into it. One of the features that I was blessed with is we had an LPT, which cut off all of our liabilities for 2017 and prior. I felt like we had done all the right things here during my first three months, including the reserving actions that we took in the second quarter so that we wouldn't have any concerns with the liability side of the balance sheet. In fact, I have a conservative position on the liability side of the balance sheet going forward. And so, and we have a good team. There are some places we'll continue to add some talent. And then we start to add some businesses in combination with the things that I've done to get us out. I think it's a relatively short duration for us to get to that place. 24 months would be an aspirational kind of target, but I, I'll hold that out there as kind of, that's a good measure of where we want to get to. And a way to tell would be, we'll look at our distributors and, and our customers and they'll say, listen, it's really important we have pig on the shelf for this particular capability and this particular capability. Simultaneously, I want our organization to be a place where the best and brightest want to come work, right? That we're building a bespoke brain trust, right? People want to come work with us because we're really great culture and we're a place where enterprising insurance professionals can apply their trade and that will be another measure. And I know those are qualitative things, but, but I think if, you know, if that's the sort of feel that we have as an organization a couple of years out, I'd consider that success. Andrew, just to pick you up on what you said about adding companies. So do you mean M&A of niche players that have those defensible positions in niche or sub-niche markets that you're interested in? Definitely a possibility? It's a possibility. I think the bar is high because I think our ability to sort of attract talent and spin, like we're going to, I mean, as an example, the CNS brokerage business, from the point that the team committed to the point that we'll launch will be 45 days. And that has a lot to do with our ability to spin up the technology to be functional, if not actually very good. And so I would never say never. I mean, I have a background doing lots of transactions. I would never say never, but I think if we can do it de novo with high quality teams, that's, that's really where we'd like to go first. Okay. So we'll build them by. Good. Exactly. Also, you mentioned about uh, distribution. Obviously, we've got a big story in distribution with Aon and Willis mooted deal. How does that affect your business? Would you rather it wasn't happening? But obviously, you can't affect that. But uh, anyway. Look, I, I, think, I think there are positives and negatives on both sides. By and large, the balance of power has dramatically shifted to distributors for a whole bunch of reasons. They're just simply getting bigger, right? And private equity has been a big feature in that. I think we're on an intractable trend. So at some level, whether it happens or not, it's almost like uh, there's a force of nature here. And so it's almost like, hey, you just have to plan for it. The flip side is uh, I you know, personally believe that you can get a lot more out of some of your reinsurance partners because they're, they're scale and scope in some instances. But I think the reality is any good CEO on the carrier side looks at that trend and says, let's, you don't have to say whether you like it or you don't like it. You have to figure out what you're going to do because that's the world that we're going to live in and we'll continue to live in. Um, the flip side is we'll see, obviously, lots of instances of people splintering off, right? And starting de novo businesses. And there's plenty of examples of that. You know, McGill, you can go through the sort of the list, but at some point they'll probably be reconsolidated and there'll be this cycle. And it will be true that the top five, the top 10, the top 25, the top 100 will continue to own a larger percentage of, of our industry. And my job as a CEO is just to make sure that we're well positioned in that context. So you just have to keep to your mantra of being relevant and being owning those particular niches. And then whoever it is, whether it's exactly. Aon Willis or Marsh, they still have to come and talk to you because you're important in that space. And, and you know, one example of that here is here in the United States in the, in the mining sector, we have strong relationships with those guys. And despite the fact that we're a smallish company, it's because 
you know, we're a top two, top three player and we're really, really, really good. And so they need us. And, you know, we want to have those kinds of positions over and over and over as a company. Five, maybe 10 years ago, it would just wouldn't have been on the agenda or very, very only at the most progressive companies, I would have thought actually. Since then, Me Too and BLM have fundamentally reset the market's attitudes to how it conducts itself and how it looks at diversity and inclusion issues. So now as a business leader, how do you react to what's been going on in wider society in terms of the culture at Hig? This is actually, I'm really pleased to have a chance to talk about this. I happen to have two kids. One is a data scientist, works in the industry, uh, and another who works in national accounts. One works for um, a very well-known diversified company, and the other works actually for a Lloyd's of London-owned company. And one's 22, one's 25. Both were chirping my ear as we started to see here in the U.S. some of the societal things that, that were occurring in response to the George Floyd situation. And What's really interesting is it forced me to think proactively in advance of a lot of the patina names taking positions on this. And we happen to have a very diverse workforce. And so as a CEO at the time, only I think three weeks into the job, it was actually a defining moment because I started speaking to our staff about this before anybody in the industry started talking. It was just serendipity that, that I did. And it had a huge galvanizing impact. It set the tone in a way that I, there's nothing I could have done that would have been nearly as impactful in setting the tone. And, and we as an organization, we are a very diverse workforce and we're certainly at our core embracing diversity in all regards. And I think that having the opportunity to sort of speak to our, our employees on this basis before really talking about strategy or anything else was just, it was a once in a lifetime moment. And a lot of it was driven by my kids who were pushing me to speak to our employees early because they were frustrated that the CEOs of their companies weren't speaking to them. And it was a tremendous lesson learned and it quite honestly serendipitous. And it's really sort of caused us as a company and the leadership team to really kind of lean into this in a way that I'm super proud. And so in some ways, I think it's been incredibly helpful for us as an organization to get a lot more enlightened. And I think as an industry, you're seeing that in spades everywhere. It's really a wonderful change. Unless there's anything else, I'd just like to thank you for giving me your time and I wish you all the best with this new role you've got at Hig. Sounds very exciting. It's going to be a very busy 24 months keeping up with what you're doing. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it, Mark, and, uh, and, and keep this up. This is terrific stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>